Uh, we're going to continue in our series today called Life Starts Now. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And so if you uh, want to, if you've got a Bible with you, I invite you to find that or turn on your phone and find that. And um, and uh, let's go to Mark chapter 7. Big numbers are the chapters, small numbers are the verses. And uh, we're going to stand together for the reading of God's words as we go verses 1 through 23. Let's stand together. From Mark chapter 7, if you're able, stand together in Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. This is actually the second time this has happened in our series. They want to check out what's going on, so they're going north to the region of Galilee. They noticed that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. And then he says in parentheses, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water or you might more truly say sprinkle themselves, which might actually meant going to the market and bumping into all those Gentiles. They would go wash from having been around sinners and, and so on. Uh, picking up at verse four. Um, yeah, similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Okay, I'm going to stop again. You're wondering why would Mark put something in parentheses? It's because he's writing to an audience that's not familiar with these traditions. Mark's writing to a predominantly Roman audience, Roman readers, and so he's just kind of filling them in, giving them the backstory, just like I'm doing for you right now. Verse 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And then he said, verse 9, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. And in this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes from your heart. Remember, referring back to the washing, eating without having properly washed your hands. So that's kind of what he's referring back to. Verse 17, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand it either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. And by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, verse 20, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They 
are what defile you. Let's be seated together. We thank the Lord for his word. We're going to talk a little bit about tradition. Today's uh, topic is life with tradition. Now, tradition can be a really, really good thing. I would, I would describe tradition like this. Tradition is routine with meaning. Routine with meaning. Um, I, I would guess that most of us in this room have some traditions around this season, around the Christmas season. There's a certain day you've got to get your tree up. There's a certain cookie you just have to have at Christmas time. And, and usually it's like something ethnic or something from your heritage, something you've got, you just got to have it. Uh, there, there's, you know, uh, man, it's something connected. The, the, the day you open, like some are like, you have to open your gifts on Christmas Eve. And others are like, no, you can't open. You have to open them Christmas Day. And like, well, no, that's when you open your stuff. I'm like, all these traditions that can add some fun, but also value, meaning to your life. But traditions can also become habits that lose meaning. Uh, you've probably heard the story about the woman who's young woman. She's she's making a, she's making the big dinner for the family for the first time, and and she's preparing the ham, and she cuts the end of the ham off. And her husband says, "You know, why do you cut the end of the ham off like that?" She goes, "I I, I don't know. It's what my mom always did." So when mom comes over and they're having the nice dinner, and and uh, she says, "Hey, mom, I was just wondering, how come every time you made a nice ham for us, you always cut the end of the ham off before put, putting it in the roaster?" She goes. I don't know, it's what my mom did. So, grandma happened to be there too, and so they asked grandma, Grandma, how come you always cut the end of the ham off before roasting it? And we don't really understand. It seems like you're throwing away some perfectly good... She goes, oh, back in the day, we didn't have much money, and the pan I had was too small. So I had to cut that end off to fit it into the pan. (laughs) Traditions, without meaning, are wasteful, aren't they? The encounters in this passage that we just read warn us now about the dark side of tradition. In spiritual matters, religious tradition, here's it, religious tradition can let us look the part of a righteous person without ever engaging the heart. It helps us look good without engaging the heart. Tradition then can become more important than what it was originally intended to teach or achieve. So Jesus is comparing laws versus customs. And so there was a there's a body of law that the, the Jewish people to to observe, including food laws and so on, Ten Commandments in there. But then what it had built up over the centuries was common basically commentary on the law. So well if you're going to keep the Sabbath, here's how you keep the Sabbath. You don't work. Okay, so what's work? Well, lighting a fire, that would be work. Um, taking too many steps, that's work. Uh, you know, and it's so on. They kind of expanded to try to give, kind of give the understanding. Well, if you're going to observe the Sabbath, you've got to do all these extra things. And so, you remember, we, we encountered a situation a few weeks ago where Jesus and his disciples were walking through the field. Disciples grab a handful of grain, rub it in their hands, and have a little snack while you're walking through the fields. That's what farmers do. And, it's, and the Pharisees are like, you guys are working. You're working on the Sabbath. You're harvesting grain. Jesus is like, seriously? I'm basically, that's Jesus' response. <laughs> so, in other words, traditions run the risk of putting our faith on autopilot. You know, like we go through the motions, but we're personally disconnected from what's happening. And Jesus teaches us that this turns us into hypocrites. 
Because there's no such thing. If you're taking notes today, if you've got your little booklet with you, you can write this one down. There's no such thing as self-driving faith. There's no self-driving faith. Now, I don't want you, but I am totally not looking forward to self-driving cars. I am not. I know they're probably going to be safer. They're going to be more efficient. I get it. It's going to help with traffic regulation, traffic congestion, all that stuff. But I am not a fan. I love to drive. I don't, I don't care if it's a new car. I don't care if it's an old car, tractor, motorcycle, uh, you name it. I love driving. I love the sound of the engine. I don't really care for all you Priuses creeping up on me in a parking lot. Thank you very much. It's terrifying. All of a sudden, there's a car there, right? I like a car that's, like it's loud. I, I love the smell. I love the feel. I mean, I just love driving vehicles. I, in fact, when I was 12, 13, 14, I was counting down the years to when I would get my driver's license. I mean, imagine, I'm not thinking, you know, when you're 12 years old, a year is an eternity, right? And I'm like, only four more years, and I get my driver's license. My mom busted me out of class, like a doctor's appointment, so I could go write my driver's test. I mean, my mom is awesome. She didn't make me eat peas, and she busted me out of class to get my driver's license. I failed the first time. But in our world, pretty much every boy, every 16-year-old boy failed the first time. And the girls always passed. I don't know. There was some... It's political. But listen, I don't want a self-driving car. I really don't. Well, think about this in your faith. You're expected to drive. We need to drive our own faith, our own relationship with God as well. You cannot really, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not engage your mind, your body, your, your, you know, your brain, the whole person. The whole person. There's no autopilot. There's no self-driving. There's no, there's no Tesla version of Christianity. But traditions can take on that autopilot element if we're not mindful about it because they, Traditions comfort us and they make us kind of feel like we're really spiritual and we really, you know, really a good Christian because we, we keep those traditions and we, we find ourselves even clinging to things that, that, that are traditional just for the sake of the ritual. And anytime we cling to something other than Jesus our Savior, we're converting that thing into an idol. Idols are anything that gets in front of God, more important, elevated. Hang on to anything that we can't let go. That's an idol. So, you know, we we uh, we really enjoyed traditional music in church this morning. It was really really fun to kind of sing something different, and crank it up. But yeah, it was great. But just think about any of the practices we do, right? In in a church, any or not just our church, but any church, the kinds of music, the kinds of instruments we use, the programs we have for children or adults, or even the kind of food we'll serve at a potluck. We, you know, it's just not a real potluck if, if those buns with the double buns on them, or, you know, if it's not there, it's not really a potluck, right? I know what they're called, don't worry. <laughs> but anytime we say, well, we have to do it this way, X, Y, Z, it's just, it's just the way we've always done it. It's just the best. We may be missing the point. We may be falling into a tradition instead of a relationship with God. Well, why are those things so important to us? I mean, why couldn't we gather on a Thursday night instead of a Sunday morning? I mean, 
Why couldn't we disciple each other in small groups instead of classes or vice versa? Right? Why do we use an organ or the drums or a guitar or piano or not? Some churches sing a cappella with no instruments at all. Some churches have a full orchestra. It doesn't matter. Those are just, those are just tools. Right? They're, they're just tools and, and they're good. They're, they're neutral things in themselves. They're meant to be tools to help us develop a vibrant, living, growing relationship with Jesus. So never allow yourself to turn a ritual into a sacred cow. A sacred cow is an idol. Something that gets worshipped instead of God. Jesus says in verses 6 and 7, you will get that one on screen. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. It's got to be a sobering moment for us when we read this. Do I honor God with my lips, but my heart is far from God? Do I look to man-made commands as commands from God? Anytime we, you know, we harbor things in our life that are, that are damaging, bitterness, unforgiveness, um, you know, slanderous, I, I, we'll, we'll get to it kind of at the end, but those are things that are kind of inwardly, it's not good, but outwardly it looks great. You may have noticed I wore a suit jacket this morning. Seriously. Yeah. I was trying to think of the last time I wore a suit jacket in a, in a worship service, Sunday worship service. I think it was either 1993 or 1994. Seriously. Now some of you are thinking, finally, that guy's finally figured it out. He's finally dressing properly. Others of you are thinking, who died? Right? Well, I thought, we're doing a little traditional music this morning. I'll dress a little traditional. It's kind of fun. It's fine. Right? If you like dressing like this, Go for it. If your motives are right for it, do it. The outside doesn't matter. But Jesus is making a point for us here. See, Becky, my wife, says I look pretty good this morning. But how do you know what's going on underneath this jacket? My shirt could be an old, raggedy, torn up, stained shirt. The inside of the jacket could be all in shreds and tatters. You wouldn't know. Because then the outside looks good. My heart could be cold, rude, selfish, stingy, unforgiving. Would you know if the outside looks good? See, that's all of us without faith in Jesus Christ. Our own efforts at righteousness, right standing with God... Our own efforts are nothing but a, just a filthy rag in the eyes of God. Our only hope for right standing God, right standing with God is the very, very good news that Jesus has made the way for you and me to be forgiven, to be set free. It's only by faith. It's not faith plus try really hard. It's faith in God's grace to forgive me. Cleanse me, save me, continue to 
make me right, sanctify, make me holy in that process. But it's always a choice. It's my decision whether or not I'm going to have faith in Jesus. And your faith isn't going to drive itself. It's not going to take care of itself. No matter how much good ritual and good routine and good tradition you add to it. Jesus is inviting you to constantly assess your heart condition. Keep it soft. Don't use tradition to to kind of hide behind what's really going on in your life. So it's always the test. Am I more concerned about tradition or more concerned about, you know, the commands of men? Or am I really concerned about having a soft heart toward God? That's what matters. See, one problem with religious religion generally and religious tradition is that it can be really mean sometimes. It can be really mean. We'd say it this way, that, that religion is a bully. Religion is a bully. Um, you kind of wonder why Jesus was always clashing with the religious leaders of his day. And it's because strict adherence to religion almost always leads to conflict. Certainly relational conflict, but other conflicts as well, pushes people away from a real, real relationship with God. It's unmerciful. It's harsh. It's graceless. You know, I read a news article this week about an Afghani guy come to this continent and his uh, his ex became his ex-wife and his three daughters were dressing kind of Western. So he killed them. What? For, for how you dress? I mean, I understand you're upset. Right? It's called an honor killing. It's extreme. But that's what extreme religion will do to people. It's damaging. It's destructive. But it also gets way more personal. We could probably all relate a story of our own of a, maybe it's our own story or a story of a loved one of a deep wounding that happened when a, when an unwritten church rule was violated. And I'm not talking about the sin issues Jesus mentions. We're going to get to those in a minute, but, but the wrong clothes or you're associated with the wrong friends or you didn't bring your kids to the Wednesday program or you're not a stay at home mom or something. There was something that you got jabbed at about. I remember hearing a story in a church where a, a, a gal, she, she brought a, a friend who didn't attend that church. She brought her to the Bible study. She didn't know Jesus yet. And she was reprimanded for bringing a friend to Bible study because it's not what we do here. You know, that, that kind of stuff that kind of leaves deep, lasting scars. Jesus used an example here of these religious leaders who neglect the proper care of their parents. Keep in mind, there's no social security in that era. There's no kind of, you know, long-term care insurance, all those good things that we're supposed to have. The way it was, you had enough kids that, that as you get older, your kids take care of you. Wouldn't that be good? I shouldn't have stopped at two. should have had a few more, right? And then these these religious leaders worked out a way that they didn't have to do that. So Jesus is saying, look, the, the law says, respect your mother and father, take care of your parents. But you found a way around it. It's, and he says it's one example of many. Verse 11, you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you. I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this regard, in this way, you, you let them disregard their needy parents. Oh, I, 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 you know, I can't spend this money on you, mom and dad, because, you know, I dedicated this to, to God. 
So they can still spend that on themselves. It's just that it's dedicated to the Lord. It would be like, oh, I can't loan you my car because I dedicate it to the Lord so only I can drive it. Right? Do you see the absurdity in that? They were using a tradition to break the fourth commandment, honor your mother and father. Now, I'm thankful. I, these are not things that we've had to fight. I've had, certainly have not had to fight here at Bethany, but we are all in our own way prone to this because we're, it's in our human nature, right? When we, when we press into religion instead of a living daily relationship with God, we run the risk of becoming judgmental, even bully-like, because religion is a bully. It pushes, it shoves, it belittles. Let's guard against that. Jesus then moves the whole discussion to, to this thing of what goes into you versus what comes out of you. Jewish food laws are a little bit tough for us to get excited about. Um, there's a lot of them. I, I've got acquaintances with a couple of Orthodox Jews, and I'm, I'm serious. Like, one was visiting, and I, he said, well, hey, look, can we go for lunch? He says, well, yeah. I said, how about this place? No. How about this place? No. I said, how about Panera? It's like a bread place. He goes, oh, yeah, I think that's good. So we went to Panera. Poor guy had a cup of yogurt off the shelf. That was it. There was nothing else. Well, because it's prepared in a non-kosher kitchen, all that. I'm like, oh, man. It'd be really hard to be like serious friends with you. <laughs> right? But to an Orthodox Jew, those food laws, I mean, they observe them like their very life depends on it. The same could be said. I, you know, I know some Seventh-day Adventists. They love Jesus, followers of the Lord, no problem. But they're really strict on some of those rules, especially food, food laws. And, and it's like their life's in danger if they don't observe them. Now, Jesus goes on to say, look, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's just food. It's from God. Enjoy it. What matters is the behavior that comes from your heart, comes from inside of you. So if you're a meat eater, if you're a carnivore like me, great. Enjoy it. Have at it. God gave us everything to enjoy. If you're a vegetarian, if you're a vegan, same thing. Enjoy it. Uh, that's fantastic, Right. Just in both cases, whether you're a meat eater or a not meat eater, don't go judging others, condemning others because they don't share your same convictions. That's all. That's the only guideline about it. Eat what you want. But don't judge others for it. Becky and I know a couple who've been, oh man, they've been married over 20 years. They've got five kids and uh, he's a hunter. He hangs elk in the garage. She's a vegetarian and a strict one. And they have kept their marriage together. I don't know how they do it. It's awesome. That's a good good picture of people who say we love each other without needing to force our perspective on one another. A sweet couple, actually. What matters is what your heart produces. What matters is what your heart produces. If you're writing things down, you could say this. Do what it takes to produce good fruit. Do what it takes to produce good fruit. Look again at the kind of last few verses there we read. Verse 20 to 23, picking up verse 20. 
Jesus added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts. Then he goes on to begin a list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, or more literally lewdness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these vile things come from within you. They are what defile you. See, sin begins in the heart. It's incubated in the mind. Sin begins in the heart. It's in our, it's in our nature, our human born nature to do what is sinful, to do what is wrong. No one has to teach a two year old how to throw a temper tantrum. It's in their nature, right? So temptation happens. Our human nature is bent towards sin. By God's grace, when you yield your life to Him, when you surrender your life to Him by God's grace, your heart is being sanctified. It's being made holy. It's in process. It's a lifelong journey. But what we have some control over is our mind, our thoughts, the way we think, the way we train ourselves to think. Sin... Starting to think about how you know how do you how do you say it? I think sin is ultimately selfishness in action. It's the action it's the action of selfishness. It's inherently self-serving at a cost to others. We, let me let's look at this list a little bit. If you got your if you've got your Bible open, go to verse 20, uh, 21. And it's a list of of uh really of uh twelve things and it's kind of broken in three sets of three. And I, I, I see that because it, there's three times there's something of a sexual nature that's referenced. Anytime the apostle Paul deals with sexual sin, I mean, deals with lists of sin, he always starts, sexual sin is always at the top of his list. And the reason is because our sexuality is so ingrained to us as a person. It's our soul, it's our body, it's all in one. It's very spiritual and it's also very physical. And so that's why it's so, you know, the commands of Scripture are so clear about the sexual relationship is to be confined within the bounds of marriage. Why is that? Because that's a, that's a covenant that's been made, is made between a man and a woman for life. It's not something to be shared outside of that. Whether you've met your spouse yet or not, young people, this is why it's so crucial that, that you say, that is a, that is a sacred covenant that I'm going to make with one person for my life. Now, if that's, if that's something you've already, a boundary you've already crossed, God is so gracious and he, he restores brokenness. He brings healing. But this, what, there, there's a bond that happens and it, and it, it's a covenant. So that means it's an agreement that's sealed. And when people go in and out of a sexual relationship, the covenant's sealed and it's broken. It's sealed and it's broken. It's sealed and it's broken. And it creates damage upon damage upon damage. You think, no, nah, it's fine. Every, you know, it's just how it is these days. I'm telling you, it leaves a destruction, a trail of destruction in your life. So be countercultural, be different, go the way that Jesus has for you. It's right and it's good and you'll never regret it. And like I say, when there's been brokenness, God is so gracious. He's so healing and, and merciful. Anyway, that was not in the notes, but let's talk about these three lists. He starts with sexual immorality, theft and murder. I was trying to think, what is that? That's taking from others. It's taking what doesn't belong to you. It's taking what isn't yours. That's what sexual immorality does. And so in that, that's reference of anything that's sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. 
whether it's, yeah, anyway, anything. Theft, murder, taking what isn't yours to take. God alone is the giver of life and the taker of life that's not ours to take. So that's taking from others. The next part of the list, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit. This is using others. I'm not taking from them, but it's using others for our own gain, our own benefit in some way. Adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit. And then the rest of the list, lustful desires or lewdness, envy, literally it's evil eye, the evil eye, slander, pride, foolishness. You know what this is? This is destroying others. This is the destruction of other people, again, for our own pleasure, our own gain, or our own benefit, or somehow to fulfill something that we want. So it's taking from others, it's using others, and it's destroying others. That's what Jesus is talking about, these these sins that are inerrant to us. And he says they do, they come from, any one of us could do these things. None of us is above any of this, which is why Jesus is saying, I want you to pay attention to this. It's a battle in the mind. So it doesn't matter how nicely I dress, how physically in shape I get, how properly I eat. When I participate in these things, Jesus says, I'm a defiled person. Jesus says, I'm spiritually unclean. I'm not bringing forth good fruit in my life. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 12, chapter 2. I mean, chapter 12, verse 2. He says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Another translation says, but uh, be transformed by the renewing, making new of your mind. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's the kind of life that God invites you to. Who wouldn't want a life that is good and pleasing and perfect? Wouldn't you want that? Isn't that an appeal to you? But it begins with a, a mind transformation. So as a follower of Jesus, we should be asking ourselves, so how am I renewing my mind? What am I putting into my mind and my heart that can then grow into good fruit? You know, I've been out in the rural areas of Fresno lately and I, I have seen groves loaded with oranges. I don't know if it's more than usual, but it's incredible to just drive around and see, just loaded with oranges. And uh, it's really beautiful. Do you know what kind of trees those are? What? Orange trees. <laughs> Amazingly. Now, you technical agrarians don't get technical with me and say, yeah, but the rootstock is a peach. They grafted it in. That. Okay, the tree is an orange tree. Why? Because the true the tree always produces like fruit. What you plant is what you harvest. Right? And the kind of tree you grow in your heart or from your heart and from your mind is the kind of fruit you produce. What you plant in your heart and your mind is what you will produce. Don't concern yourself too much about what others are growing in their orchards. Don't go digging in someone else's garden when you've got Weeds growing in your own. So here's the obvious question. How do I produce good fruit? Well, like any agribusiness, it takes good cultivation, right? Kill the weeds. Put good nutrients 
in the soil of your heart and mind. Submit yourself to the master gardener when he comes by to do some pruning in your life. Some difficult times. Don't get hung up on external religious rituals when it's the internal work of faith that matters. Cultivate your heart and your mind so that you can produce all the good fruit possible. We can love good traditions. I'm not anti-traditional. We can love good traditions when they help us grow in our relationship with Jesus. And we should probably ditch the ones that don't. The ones that are keeping us from freedom in Christ, reject those. Prune them off. Because God wants you to produce all the good fruit He has in mind for you to produce. Let's pray together. Jesus, I'm not sure I would have wanted to be there when you were rebuking those Pharisees and religious teachers. I certainly would not have wanted to be in their sandals. But Lord, we hear you. We hear what you're saying. That we ought to be considering the tenderness of our own hearts. We ought to be considering the things that we place as idols. We ought to be mindful of making sure we're not honoring you with our lips, but having hearts that are cold. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love the best of what's what's in our histories and our traditions and our families and churches and schools and workplaces. Lord, help us to love what's the best of those. But Lord, set us free from those things that keep us from taking those important steps with you. Lord, let us, let us be people who produce great fruit from hearts that are turned toward you and minds that are being transformed by you. You're so good to us. You're so patient, forgiving, compassionate. We thank you for that. Let us be a, a church that just, just is a full fruit basket of your goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. And God, again, as we've prayed already in this service, I pray that even this week, as many of us are working together on this big project, as we're encountering each other in different circumstances, Lord, that we we would just flow with the grace of God, that we'd receive it and we'd pour it out to others. Lord, as people are at holiday parties at work and and um, different things like that, I pray that there'd be a, just a clear testimony of you and what it means to be a follower of Jesus that will be distinct and different, not noted not for being religious, but for being people of grace and people of good fruit that you produce in our lives. You are so good to us. We give you praise for all these good things. In Jesus' name, amen.